Thank you, Kirby, and thank you all for being here and giving me the opportunity to spend time together in Yellowstone National Park during the park stagecoach years of 1878 to 1916. So I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. My mom's from Haver, and her parents lived in Bozeman, Montana. And so that's my Montana connection there, is coming down um, a couple times a year from Calgary um, to visit my grandparents in Bozeman with side trips to Yellowstone Park. And uh, in the late 1980s, when I was visiting my grandmother at her retirement home in Bozeman, I had an opportunity to read Will Wiley's manuscript and that, as Karen, uh, or excuse me, Karen Lawton of Washington State University Press reminded me, was a family treasure. And so I'd like to start by introducing you to the central figure of Yellowstone Summers, my great-great-uncle, William Wallace Wiley. His unpublished manuscript looked back on his 25 years in the park. In 1926, Wiley sat down and finished his 98-page memoir detailing his association with Yellowstone National Park. He stated that the book did not need a preface, adding that the few who may read it may think it needs more than that. He made no apology for the near-constant use of first-person pronoun, stating bluntly that his manuscript was only a record of my own experiences, and I can only tell it that way. In the course of the memoir, Wiley included observations that could be mistaken as scientific explanations for facts of nature, but cautioned that they were not meant to be taken seriously. Finally, he concluded that if the reader gets some interest and possible pleasure in perusing the book, I want to assure him it is little he will get compared with the pleasure I have had in writing it and living over again the maybe too many things told. Like they say over the radio, if you are interested sufficiently to make either criticism or condemnation, drop me a postcard to station WWW. With characteristic practicality, Wyland concluded by offering readers who might want to write to him his 1926 address of Emerson Street in Pasadena, California. So in addition to being captivated by his memoir, I also have a history degree from the University of Puget Sound, and I was a teacher for many years. I did my teaching certificate at the University of Montana and with coursework at Seattle Pacific University. And I think that shared sensibility with Wiley kept pushing me through the process of um, trying to introduce his story to a greater audience. It's almost like meeting a new friend for the first time. You have to be in the present moment, be here now, 
And once you get to a place where you realize you maybe have more than you ever thought you would, or you have something in common with that person, you start wanting to introduce introduce the character to a greater audience. And so I think those are the things that kept me going through the process. It took me about 10 years of working on this part-time to get to the place I am today. So let's find out more about the unpublished manuscript, which was completed in 1926, four years before Will's death. It made its way back to Paul R. Wiley Sr. in Bozeman, Montana in 1966. Paul was my grandmother's older brother, and he made copies of the memoir for his brothers, sisters, and Montana State University's historical manuscripts collection. The original manuscript was delivered to Yellowstone National Park Archives on behalf of his cousin, Will's granddaughter, Mary Lou. Let's find out more about how Will Wiley's curiosity about the park and the American West got the best of him. As a student at Lenox College in Iowa, Wiley read an article in Scribner's Monthly, 37 Days Apparel by Truman Everts. Everts told of becoming separated from his party and surviving on his own without food or weapons in Yellowstone as part of the Washburn Langford Doan expedition that left Helena, Montana on September 17, 1870, to explore and map the area of northwestern Wyoming that later became Yellowstone National Park. General Henry D. Washburn, Surveyor General of Montana, and Nathaniel P. Langford led the expedition with Lieutenant Gustavius C. Doan as the military escort. Wiley recalled an exact passage in an account by Lieutenant Doan detailing the day that Truman Everts got lost from the Washburn expedition. Doan wrote, Mr. Everts did not come in with the rest of the party, and the men sent back on the trail found no trace of him. We fired guns and kept watch during the night, but without success. Wiley noted that the passage showed how vividly my interest was awakened in this incident as well as in the locality in which it occurred. Years later, after the Scribner's Monthly article ignited the imagination of an Iowa college student, the paths of Wiley and Everts actually crossed in Yellowstone National Park when Wiley witnessed Mr. Everts touring the park with his daughter. At the sight of the elderly Everts helping his daughter to see the park that had so dramatically affected his life, Wiley, too, would think of how Everett's account of his misadventures had profoundly changed his own life. Several years after graduation from Lenox College, Wiley received a serendipitous invitation to leave Iowa for the American West. It was in early 1878, and he was riding his horse near Lyons, Iowa, which is a, a small lumber community where he served as school superintendent. When a stranger approached him, Wiley reined his horse to a stop. 
When the gentleman introduced himself as a merchant from Bozeman, Montana, Wiley remembered that the man's son attended Lyons High School. In the middle of a road in southeastern Iowa, the stranger asked a question that would change Wiley's life. How would you like to go teach in the Rocky Mountain country? The question, Wiley wrote, arrested my attention. The man stated that the latest Bozeman newspaper had reported that the new school in Bozeman needed a principal. He promised that if the position was still vacant, when he returned to Montana, he would recommend Wiley to the school board. Wiley agreed to seriously consider the offer. He told the man to expect a letter from him with his final decision. Although there's no record of the letter, it was clear that Wiley's attention was more than arrested. It was captured. He took the principal's job in Bozeman beginning in September 1878. His bride of four years, Mary Ann, stayed behind in Independence, Iowa with the couple's two small children, Elizabeth three and Fred one. We can only guess as to the reasoning for this decision, but it was common at the time when the far west was only Iowa for the men to go ahead, evaluate the risks involved, and send for their families later. Now Wiley's first trip on horseback to Yellowstone Park was with Richard Lockheed of Helena, Montana. And that occurred at the end of the 1880 school year. The trip cost each man $2.27. And Wiley remembered that Lockheed sliced the bacon very thin. <laughs> Upon his return, to Bozeman, Wiley immediately launched into plans to return to the park three weeks later. That same summer, this time touring with, in a Bane wagon with an emigrant cover. This, his first party of tourists, numbered about nine and included his wife and children. Wiley's enthusiasm about Yellowstone Park was very typical of the beginnings of early park promotion. Fresh from wondrous Yellowstone experiences, travelers like Wiley wanted to share the park's sights, sounds, and smells with others. Now remember, this was an age without television, radio, or social media, and so travelers' stories were often enough to compel others to go to Yellowstone Park. In Wiley's case, as we shall see, he was drawn into choreographing the whole experience. Now the following summer, in 1881, he was again in Yellowstone, this time with Henry Bird Calfee, one of the park's first photographers. While Calfee took pictures, Wiley wrote a guidebook for the park that reflected his sensibility as a teacher. Elizabeth Watry, who wrote her Montana State University thesis on the Wiley Camping Company, described Yellowstone as Wiley's outdoor classroom. That guidebook was published in 1882 and initially fell into the hands of fellow educators who in turn booked a reasonably priced sagebrushing tour with Wiley. 
when you were a sagebrusher, you stopped with your equipment whenever night fell. He and his wife, Marianne, would act on a trend that encouraged middle-class travelers, and this would include many single women as well, to seek out experiences that wealthy travelers did, and that is to go beyond their own backyard or their region and see the beauty of America. Over the next 10 years, the Wiley Camping Company grew, and by the 1890s, Will and Marianne, who were now busy in Bozeman with a large extended family and children who were busy as well, realized they were drifting into a tourist business. This overlapped at a time when, when Will Wiley served as Montana Territories Superintendent of Public Instruction from 1885 to 1887 followed by consulting work to develop a new Presbyterian school called the Bozeman Academy. So I'll just pause for a moment because I'm, my bias is against doing too much of this continuous talking, but I felt it was important to sort of set um, the story in the larger context of what was going on in America at the time. Does anyone have any questions to this point? Yes. The book is Yellowstone Summer, or his guidebook. It's um, The Great American Wonderland. And there are still books available on eBay now and again, and they go for about four to six hundred dollars. Yeah. So, are there any other questions to yes? When did the train uh, get to Yellowstone? Which train? Well, 1883 was a banner year for the park. And I, um, let me find a section on that. Yellowstone Park National Park or the Great American Wonderland is the name of the guidebook. And the, I, I believe that there's one in the Special Collections Library in Bozeman that was also in the Museum of the Rockies exhibit about Yellowstone Park. And they're, they're usually leather bound with a little gold embossed um, guys are next to a pine tree. It would have been about 1883. It got to Livingston in 1882. Yes. So there was, uh, you know, at that point, In April of 1883, the construction began on the Northern Pacific branch line from Livingston to Cinnabar. Any other questions at this point? So the growth in the Wileys 
tourist business also coincided with another national trend that was going on in the 1890s. There had been a shift in American thinking about wilderness. For the 1890s were the first decade without an American frontier. So the traits of solitude and adversity that characterized wilderness and intimidated pioneers were now likely very appealing to their grandchildren. Yellowstone remained on the rim of civilization and Americans, especially the growing middle class with time and money and the inclination to travel, had a desire for a safe and an invigorating adventure such as the Wiley Camping Company's tour, and they found traveling with the Wileys very appealing. During the Yellowstone off-season, Wiley packed his bags and headed to Washington, D.C. to seek permission to establish permanent camps. Up until this time, as I had mentioned, he was a sagebrusher, and so whenever night fell, so did his sleeping bag hit the ground. But they really, as you can well imagine, that was a lot of work, picking up all your equipment every morning and then laying it out again at night. So they, they really wanted to have these permanent camps. Wiley and other park concessioners expressed concern about one entity holding a monopoly in Yellowstone, particularly the combination of hotel, stage, and railroad privileges that were attached to the Northern Pacific Railway. In the early 1890s, Interior Secretary John Noble was an unwavering advocate for separate concessioners to provide tourist accommodations for and for accommodations and transportation. And then, of course, the Northern Pacific disagreed with that. Secretary Noble's successors at the Interior Department were inadequate to the task of adopting Noble's policy, so it fell year after year to Wiley to go to Washington, D.C. and proved that his camping tours had value and should, he should be granted a long-term permit for permanent camps. To help his advocacy, he retained attorneys George Lamar in Washington, D.C. and James Blanchard of New York City. In 1896, after waiting in Washington, D.C. for several days, for a hearing with the Secretary of Interior, Hoke Smith, Wiley accepted a one-year license for permanent camps with a promise of renewal from the department's assistant secretary. He then incorporated as the Wiley Camping Company and ordered new stationery, which defines his vision of park tourism. Our camps are permanent. No more moving of tents. Excellent cooks at all camps. Steel range cook stoves, dining and other tents heated with stoves. Large compartment tents. Woven wire springs under fine mattress beds. No sleeping on the ground. Provisions best market affords 
Our ticket includes a steamer trip on Yellowstone Lake, meet the train every day, find covered buggies to ride in, longer time at points of interest than any other method gives. After meeting patrons at Cinnabar's rail station, Wiley and his drivers transported them to Gardner for lunch. Then on to Willow Park's camp across from Apollinaris Spring for dinner and overnight with a brief stop at Mammoth Springs. After breakfast on the second day, the tourists went to Old Faithful with lunch served en route at Gibbon Canyon. The third day was also spent at Old Faithful. The Old Faithful camp was located near Daisy Geyser and hot water from the Punchbowl Spring was piped into the camp kitchen. The camp was large by Wiley Camping Company standards, serving 140 tourists compared to their other camps, which could serve 60 people at full capacity. A piano adorned the camp's reception tent, and according to camp lore one night, a patron, a certain college professor, ambled into the tent and noticed a sign announcing, Daisy will play at... Seeing that the time chalked in was just minutes away, the professor sat down to await this piano playing Daisy. But Daisy, of course, was not a talented employee tinkling away on the ivories, but Daisy Geyser, located less than 100 feet away. <laughs> on the fourth day, tourists traveled southeast oops, from Old Faithful to Yellowstone Lake on the road from the upper basin to the west thumb of Yellowstone Lake, eliminating the need to approach the lake via the Devil's Stairway. We can thank Lieutenant Hiram Martin Chittenden, also of um, Seattle's Ballard Locks, for supervising construction of that road. Wiley Camping Company patrons were served lunch at West Thumb, where they boarded the steamer Zilla. They took a breezy boat ride across the open turquoise lake, replacing a grimy half-day ride through the knotted forest and over the natural bridge. At the boat's dock on the lake's north shore, coaches stood waiting. The guests were driven down to the lake camp where they spent the night in tents and were arranged in a large semicircle with a campfire at the center. Here there were only quiet ways to pass time, walking on the lake shore, breathing the fresh air, or staring across rippling blue waters at distant wooden shores and Grizzly Peak, Mount Doan, and Mount Langford. Canyon Camp was the fifth day stop on the Wiley Camping Company tour by way of Mud Geyser and Sulphur Mountain and included lunch. On the final stays tour, well, and then, I'm sorry, I, they did make excursions to Inspiration Point and the Great Falls of the Yellowstone. And then on the final day, travelers lunched at Norris on their way back to Willow Park. Wiley and Marianne made a point of hiring spirited staff with a keen interest in Yellowstone National Park to work in the camps drive the wagon loads of patrons and work as guides. 
All were expected to be conversant about the park's major points of interest. Many of Wiley's employees were from middle-class backgrounds, teachers, college students, ranchers, and cowboys, often assisted the patrons. Employees were taught that respect held the company reins for all clientele, even ugly customers. Wiley drew on his background as a teacher to advocate the importance of accurate, interesting information about Yellowstone National Park. He staffed all thermal areas with knowledgeable guides who conducted fact-based tours about each site's wonders. Wiley's information-based touring, educating visitors about the park's flora, fauna, fauna, geology, and geography set a new standard for guiding. The Yellowstone Park Association, in contrast, preferred to require their porters to double as guides. So Wiley kept his accommodations simple and affordable. It was $35 for an adult to take the Wiley tour, $47.50 for a rail ticket for a total of $82.50. And the green and white canvas tents were clustered around fire pits where guests could sing songs and share entertaining stories. Now, Wiley, while he kept things affordable, he also offered luxuries like fine mattress beds, covered buggies, Tasty meals and dining tents stocked with linen and china, which appealed to the wealthier clientele who were tired of the hotels or wanted more adventure. Today, that mix of glamour and camping is often called glamping. But during Yellowstone's stagecoach era, that blend, which included people from all walks of life, was known as the Wiley Way. Now to the backstory behind the Wiley Camping Company operations. In other words, what did it take for the Wileys to keep going day to day? First of all, patience, a sense of humor, and or a highly developed sense of the ridiculous. In about 1885, he went on one of his first expeditions, taking people through the Gallatin Canyon from his ranch at Spanish Creek, where he um, stored his equipment and kept uh, extra horses. Now, that Gallatin Canyon area was very rustic at that time. And so they pretty much were picking their way along the trail um, through down trees. But they, um, he was traveling with uh, Peter Koch, and there's the Koch Street in, uh, in Bozeman. So the Bozeman expedition that he led was camped at Tower Fall. Now the best view at was at the foot of the falls, but getting there was just shy of impossible. The route skirted the rim of Tower Creek to the Yellowstone River, then followed the creek to the falls, and it was a hard trip, 
but well worth the effort. He hiked with Peter Koch and a young man in his early 20s who had joined the party at the Grand Canyon. On the return trip, the young man shortened the hike back by scaling the canyon wall a short distance from the foot of the falls. Wiley insisted it could not be done, that the young man would give up from exhaustion if he was lucky. Koch joined Wiley and plodded back to camp. As they walked, the two men became more agitated over the risks involved in such tomfoolery. As the young man passed from their sight, Wiley shouted, if he wished to reach camp, it would be right by return to the bottom of the canyon and taking the long way around. After supper, as the party began making up their beds, the young man came in dragging into camp. His clothes hung in tatters, his body was drenched in sweat, his shoulders so hunched that his arms and knees seemed to bump into each other with every exhausted step. Wiley insisted he lie down on a bison robe and take a few sips of coffee. But the, man, the young man had no appetite. He insisted it was his night to do the dishes, and he must do them. Wiley ordered him to lie down and offered to do the dishes later. In spite of his experiences, the young man remained certain that he could scale the canyon. The next morning, he ate a big breakfast and washed the dishes. But Wiley noted for the remainder of the journey, he took direction from the older gentleman in the party. Koch repeated the tale for years to come, Wiley said, citing it as a sublime kind of patience, the greatest he'd ever witnessed on Wiley's part. But Wiley maintained he deserved no credit, for no one can successfully do a tourist business who is not made of patience. You also needed an ability to work a very full day on very few hours sleep because hungry bears visited camp commissaries regularly. It took over 15 years in the hire of Ed Mormon for Wiley and likely Marianne to sleep through the night. For the first time in years, Wiley slept through several consecutive nights because he had a dependable employee to scare off the bears. In the middle of one dank and rainy night, Wiley woke to the sounds of snorts, wood splintering, and loud crashes. Reluctantly, he left the warmth of his bed and stood in the doorway of his tent. A bear sat on the roof of the kitchen, a 12 by 16 foot building constructed entirely of log slabs. The bear, determined to get inside the kitchen, pulled the roof off with ease. Wiley picked up a handful of kindling and threw it up at the bear as he shouted, Mormon, Mormon, wake up! Dressed only in his nightshirt, he then made his way across paddles and mud to the commissary to alert Mormon. His bed in the commissary. Mr. Wiley, what are you doing? Wiley told him that he was trying to drive a bear away. Mormon sprang from his bed. I apologize, Mr. Wiley, he said. I've been up a dozen times already, and I just finished burying my dog. Damn bear near ate it. When he told the story in the years that followed, Mormon confessed that he nearly left the park that night. He'd ventured out from Cincinnati intending to work hard in the outdoors, and he realized that he'd ended up in the right place. But that night, after being woken by a bear 12 times, the last time to bury his dog, it was just too much for him. 
Nevertheless, he stayed on at Willow Park from 1899 to 1902, performing the same kinds of tasks. He also helped open other camps before the first day of the tourist season on June 15th and returned to help close up camps on the final day of the season on September 20th. And Ed Mormon is an employee that would go on many years in Yellowstone Park. Um, as we all know, all good things come to an end. And, and uh, he, even beyond working for the Wiley Camping Company, made a great career of going on and working continually in the tourist business. Um, he and another employee, Margaret Lady Mac McCartney, who was a roving human resources supervisor, who worked in Livingston during the winter, was another dependable employee who had a long Yellowstone career. And uh, Uncle Tom Richardson of Uncle Tom's Trail on the Artist Point side of Yellowstone River also started out with the Wileys. He was manager of Canyon Camp to start and then sort of sprung off his um, guiding business down the trail, which still bears his name, um, in the late 1890s. Another quality that wa helped Wiley get through his day was an innate curiosity plus a willingness to work in the trenches and be paid back in observations about wildlife. Those observations provided the foundation for the Wiley Camping Company's factual tours. And so I'll read a couple of those observations. Um, the first one has, has to do with a necessary evil of his jaw. Uh, and his position as owner, and that is the horses loved to run away and someone had to chase them, and that was him. In late August, the Wiley superintendent of transportation approached Wiley at Willow Park and informed him that six company horses had been missing for six weeks, and they'd be left to starve over the winter unless Wiley found them. Wiley left camp before daylight the following day with provisions and an extra blanket tucked under his saddle. He told Marianne to send out a search party if he didn't return in three days. In the early morning, Wiley came upon a bear in a grassy park lunching on a freshly killed bull elk. He drove the bear away and while still astride the horse, he studied the elk's massive antlers. Then he rode on for another half mile on his search for the missing horses. He stopped again. He decided he'd been a fool to leave the remarkable antlers behind, and so he turned back. Unable to relocate the grassy park, he rode in to another and found all six lost horses, chubby from grazing on tall grass. Wiley forgot about those antlers for the battle to head the horses to Willow Park began in earnest. The fight raged on. One man determined to get his horses home and six horses who were certain they preferred life on the graze. 
Wiley characterized this ordeal as the hardest riding ever experienced. For five hours, he pushed his distracted horses through pine forests that shelter 80% of Yellowstone and small parks of the finest grass known to beasts. He reached Willow Park at 9 p.m., the end of a very long day. On his park tours, Wiley tried to forget about the ever-changing dynamics of park business, instead reserving his enthusiasm for park wildlife. Like his Yellowstone guests, Wiley enjoyed viewing animals as much as taking in the park's picturesque landscape and unusual wonders. Over the years, he collected many wonderful stories about cow, elk, deer, and bears that he observed on his trips through the park. During the annual January reunion of Wiley's Park family, his stories about cow elk were a legendary part of the ritual exchange of stories about previous seasons in the park. In Wiley's eyes, elk were a, more, a most intriguing animal. He generally observed bulls in pairs or triplets, but once while hunting for lost horses, he had come upon a lone bull they met at the entrance to a small park, and the bull began pawing the ground, stepping this way and that, hinting that Wiley should give up right away. Wiley, who was leading his horse, took to the saddle and allowed the bull passage along the trail. He circled the park, hoping to figure out why the bull stood firm on that particular exit. He realized there was no alternative for a bull with tender horns. All other points of departure meant a dance with the protruding limbs of lodgepole pines. Another of Wiley's favorite anecdotes was a story about a herd of cow elk he came upon after a lengthy, unsuccessful search for two lost teams of horses. The herd was positioned on a general slope, complacently chewing their cud, and when he tried tallying the number, he stopped counting at 1,000. And as I pinted, he had to have a fierce love for those horses, which he did, because they were such an important part of his livelihood. He dreamed of driving his guests in covered rigs with match horse teams of horses to permanent match teams of horses attached to permanent to permanent compartment tents with fine mattress beds. Selecting and purchasing horses in matching breeds and colors brought Wiley more satisfaction and pleasure than anything else in the camping business. The four horse coach teams were eventually at the center of many arguments about the merits of 11 passenger carriages versus motor coaches. Despite a large number of rarely publicized wrecks and a smaller number of holdups, Wiley preferred the sorry about that the house the horse and coach, especially his six four horse teams that met the trains and transported patrons to the first station at Willow Park. Each of his teams was distinctive. One had four light-colored sorrels, which is a yellow-brown sporting white manes and tails. Another was black as coal in contrast to another team of snow-white horses. The Wileys owned a team of dark 
base, which are brown coats with brown, black points on the legs, mane, and tail, another team of dapple grays, and a third team of dapple bays. These four horse teams in their various shades of white, black, gray, and brown were the show teams of the park, widely recalled, often convincing an indecisive tourist to sign up for a ride. Wiley did not hunt deer or elk, acknowledging that that might be considered strange, especially since he was in the park years before firearms were prohibited by law. In those early years, parties frequently killed more meat than they could eat, and they would traditionally jerk the meat by hanging it in trees to dry, which Wiley wrote proved a godsend to many a hungry, weary traveler. More than once, Wiley ate the meat of another man's kill, but in all his days in Yellowstone, he never fired a shot at or toward an elk or deer and was not ashamed of that record. Wiley stated, I would as willingly go among a band of horses to shoot and kill as to aid in the killing of elk or deer. So eventually, the Wileys would sell their Yellowstone business in 1905, and they spent more time in Pasadena, California, until in 1917, Will and Marianne accepted an invitation from the Union Pacific Railway to establish Wiley Way camps in Zion Canyon and at Bright Angel Point on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Earlier that same year, President Wilson signed a war resolution, and the country formally entered World War I. Wiley was all too aware of the war as a mighty obstacle to tourist travel anywhere. But he, Marianne, and his son Clinton, their son Clinton, persevered with the assistance of Margaret Lady Mac McCartney, who had worked with them for many years in Yellowstone. On a 1917 tour of a new world of parks that included a stopover in Zion National Park, advocate Horace Albright was introduced to an old man, W.W. Wiley. Albright recalled, well, I was amazed. I had never met him before, but I knew all about him as he had originated the permanent camp system in Yellowstone selling out there years before. His so-called Wiley Way was so efficient and popular, it was copied by the curious in Yosemite. I knew of his integrity, honesty, and knowledge of park, national park standards. The Interior Department had already granted him a five-year lease for the camp and added the transportation franchise. I trusted Wiley's experience in Yellowstone and felt he would make a valuable contribution to solving concession problems. The Wileys operated their Zion camp for seven years, even after Clinton's death in 1922. Their daughter, Elizabeth Wiley McKee, managed the Canyon, Grand Canyon camp for 10 years with the assistance of her husband, Tom, and their son, Robert. I'll leave you with three thoughts about Will Wiley and his camping company. 
Operating the Wiley Camping Company was a formidable task during the summer and in the off-season. Wiley faced, in his own words, the hardest work he'd ever done during his trips to Washington, D.C. to advocate for his independent park business. He contended with park superintendents, railroad officials, legislators, and political appointees. Without his perseverance, Yellowstone's tourist industry might have been closed to competition. He also contributed to the Yellowstone National Park of today by offering factual park tours. The National Park Service's post-World War I endorsement of the educational use of the parks is a tribute to Wiley's legacy of teaching in an outdoor classroom. There are also some Helena connections. Richard Lockie, he of the thin sliced bacon, Lockie Avenue, and the Lockie Edition, which is actually a legal description of residential property around the Capitol complex. I worked in real estate for a few years prior to my current position at the Secretary of State's office. And when I'd go to um, put in a listing, I noticed the legal description, I recall, included the Lockie edition. So we can thank Richard Lockie for that and for slicing his bacon really thin. In the book, the uh, court case is detailed, and that would have been argued in the Capitol's old Supreme Court chambers. And Superintendent Young worked with Wiley in the late 1890s, about 1897, when Young became superintendent of Yellowstone. And the Tatum-Young house is where he lived when he resided in Helena, which is at 529 Flowery Street, there on Helena's west side. So I thank you so much for being here tonight and for um, allowing me to share my story. And I wondered if you had any questions.